Tony, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Excited. Why don't we uh, start with your background? You know, what, where did you come from? Uh, how did you get interested in this area? And where have you been? And uh, what are you doing now? Yeah, all right. Uh, so, you know, I was actually just talking to a couple of my grad students about how I got interested in this. And uh, I wish I had a better story here. But uh, basically, I was like most political science majors as an undergrad, sure, I was going to go to law school. Um, and then I started uh, working, I'm from Michigan originally, I was working in the Michigan State Capitol in Lansing, and that was in the state Senate's office, uh, and I remember kind of looking around one day and I realized that all of my bosses in the state Senate, like for this state senator, uh, they all had JDs, um, and none of them were using the JD, and I loved this stuff so much that I knew that if I went and got the JD, I would be that. Right. I would go back, work in the state Senate, work in a legislative body uh, and just end up you know, basically never seeing the, the JD. So I had that uh, kind of crisis of what am I going to do with my life that you have in your early 20s? Uh, and ultimately, I took a year off, um, saved up some money, blew it on Detroit Tiger season tickets, followed them around for three months, went broke. Uh, then apply for graduate school, uh, figuring not necessarily that I would like it, uh, but I knew that they gave you a stipend and it wasn't much money, but I wouldn't end up in massive debt if it turns out it wasn't going to click for me. Um, <clears throat> applied to a bunch of programs. I got into Washington University in St. Louis, which is a good program, uh, especially in the area of U.S. Congress. So I worked with Steve Smith there and I remember like second year, I think I was in the law library, like reading the congressional record at, and it was like 2 a.m. on a Friday or at that point, a Saturday morning. And I caught myself laughing out loud at something Jesse Holmes was saying in the record. Uh, and that was that kind of weird moment when I was like, yeah, maybe this is a good fit for me. Uh, maybe I should kind of keep doing this. Uh, and so, you know, I've always been interested in politics and especially interested in the whole linkage between legislative process and how that affects policy, right? Great, so where are you now? Oh, so now, yeah, I'm at the University of Georgia. <clears throat> well, at WashU, I spent a couple of summers in DC and then I did, I got, uh, I wrote my dissertation from DC. Actually, I was in Annapolis, but we were commuting back and forth. And then landed the job at Georgia, was in Georgia for a couple of years. Then went back to DC as an APSA congressional fellow, worked for the Congressional Research Service on kind of process type questions. Uh, and then I've you know, basically been in Athens ever since. Great, and so in, overall, what, what are the broad themes of your interest in research? And then we can go deeper into the specifics <clears throat> that relate to Congress, but why don't we start with uh, overall, what, what gets your attention? Yeah, it's usually just that kind of link between congressional rules, process, and, and policy making. It was something that uh, sort of always fascinated me. I always just always amazed me that something that gets so little attention, kind of in the general public media sphere, uh, could have such a big influence on day to day lives of you know, Americans. Uh, and so that's. You know, the link between rules, process, and policy was always kind of my biggest interest. Um, yeah. Well, let's go deeper into this concept of rules. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, there are, there are rules in the House and there are rules in the Senate. 
Uh, and I, there must be some rules between them. Uh, so maybe can you talk about, <clears throat> these speaking, what are these rules? How are they made? And, uh, you know, how have they evolved over time? You know, give us broad strokes from your point of view about the concept of rules in Congress. Yeah, gladly. Like, uh, it's, uh, it's one of my favorite things to talk to students about. And usually when I talk to students about it, we'll, we'll first start with kind of a broader discussion of like, you know, why rules are important. Um, <clears throat> and normally I'll kind of pitch them on like why rules are important. Uh, and they'll stare at me slack jawed with very little interest. Cause usually when I use the word rules immediately, that's, that's what's going to get students going. Then I'll usually talk to them about sports. Uh, and in Georgia, usually a good get is I'll talk to them about the national championship, I guess like three years ago, four years ago, I don't remember. Georgia was playing Alabama. I'm not actually a big college football fan, but uh, the ref got one of the calls wrong. Uh, and I was asking them, you know, I'll ask them like, how did that make you feel when you were watching that game? And like, very angry is the premise. Uh, and so then we'll get into the discussion of that's ideally what rules are meant to do is they'll, in the absence of rules, you get violence. And there's always kind of that thin line, you know, in a legislative body too, where you're watching a video and somebody will send you a video either from uh, another country or they'll talk about an instance in the US history where somebody violated a rule and stuff went down, be it a fight, an argument, uh, or just sporadic violence. Uh, so, <clears throat> Usually what will happen too, in terms of how the rule evolves is the rule will be put into place in the short term in response to that one event. Uh, <clears throat> multiple, it, it might not get used for another 20 to 30 years, right? Uh, and then it might get slightly altered or to be used for something unrelated. Like I got a bunch of phone calls, I guess four years ago or a few years ago when uh, Senator McConnell called uh, Senator Warren to order uh, under an existing Senate precedent. It was the, you know, if you might remember the she persisted like uh, discussion uh, in terms of where that rule came from. And I think that rule is a really nice illustration of how these rules evolve. That rule was originally put on the Senate uh, or put into the Senate in response to an event in early, maybe 1905, early 19. Early 20th century is the punchline, uh, where a Senator John McLaurin of uh, South Carolina had started, a Democrat had started to take uh, back up the position of majority party Republicans. Uh, and during the course of a speech he was giving, he upset his colleague, who was the senior senator from South Carolina, also a Democrat named Pitchfork Ben Tillman. And if you don't know anything about Pitchfork Ben Tillman, his name is Pitchfork Ben Tillman, and that basically tells you everything. So Tillman runs to the floor and he just cold cocks McLaurin, punches him right into the face, knocks him out. There's a big like brouhaha, they pull him off there. And they end up setting up this rule that says a senator can't disparage another senator during the course of the debate. Basically saying that what McLaurin was saying that was mean about Ben Tillman is what caused the incident. All right, so the rule went into place for that and then a hundred years later, or however long, uh, Elizabeth Warren was called to order under it because she was commenting on something Jeff Sessions did during his nomination to Attorney General. Uh, probably not really the direct intent of the rule that they'd set up, but but you get the idea. So, 
rules avoid violence. Um, are there any other intentions of the rules? Yeah, certainly. Although I do think avoiding violence at its very root can kind of be extended into anything, right? Uh, but I do think improving efficiency is a good reason why uh, rules get, get put into place. Um, <clears throat> they can have a really important impact on accountability. Uh, and I think that's something we've seen in recent decades with the filibuster uh, in terms of it exists, its existence is kind of muddled accountability. Uh, but in some other cases, certainly like they can promote more accountability. Uh, they can help bias policy outcomes. That's something we've seen uh, a great deal of, um, either towards the majority party or towards the floor median. Um, yeah, and then just kind of pre allowing for like uh, orderly business. So can you talk about how the rules are made in the House versus the Senate? And, uh, and, and, you know, how they just sit there and they, are they active or are they ignored, you know, how does that work? Yeah. So it, it does kind of vary from chamber to chamber. Um, you know, on the house side, they usually adopt new rules at the start of each, uh, session. Um, actually they always adopt new rules at the start of each session. Uh, and, and informally, the degree to which members pay a ton of attention to that is, I would guess, fairly minimal. Uh, I think that's also the case in the, you know, with most legislative bodies, that rules don't get a ton of attention. And this makes sense, excuse me. This makes sense at a certain level. You know, members of Congress don't get elected because their constituents care about the motion to recommit. All right, uh, they get elected because their constituents care about abortion, taxes, uh, party loyalty, however you want to word it. Uh, so I don't think they necessarily get a, get a ton of focus. And But there are a few members that certainly have a great deal of input on that. The Senate is completely different. Uh, it's the term that often gets used as a continuing body, meaning because the Constitution specifies only a third of its membership is up for re-election every two years, that the rules from one Senate persist from Senate to Senate. Uh, now, in terms of how well or how closely the two chambers follow the rules, uh, that also, I think, is a point of contention. It's fairly frequent for the House to waive its own rules when it's considering a, you know, say, a conference report or a bill, right? And when they pass a new special rule uh, or adopt a new special rule, that rule almost inevitably is going to involve some waivers in it. Um, <clears throat> the Senate, I think, is yeah, I would say the Senate probably does something similar, where a lot of the business in that chamber is conducted via unanimous consent, uh, largely so they can avoid dealing with certain rules. Uh, and there's a negotiation over what that agreement's going to look like. And in the House, the rules are controlled by the Rules Committee, which today is controlled by the mm -hmm. by the um, uh, the Speaker, right? Uh, so. Can you give us a sense of how that actually plays out? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, and this certainly hasn't been the case throughout congressional history. Uh, so when you look at the conservative coalition era of the uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, right? That was a period where the Rules Committee chairman and the House Speaker were not necessarily on the same page. But today, 
the House Rules Committee chairman and the speaker are inevitably linked extremely tightly and the House Rules Committee has a supersized majority party advantage to it. Uh, and moreover, right, the majority party members on the Rules Committee are going to be by and large loyalists, right? They're gonna be underneath uh, the speaker. Otherwise, you know, you're, you run the risk of losing right a pivotal vote right which hasn't happened in a while uh or losing control of the rule that's going to set the debate uh you know i always tell the story about uh, john boehner and the tea party right boehner i think took a fairly hands-off approach uh to dealing with the tea party except under certain circumstances he was challenged as speaker uh a couple of times uh by members within his own party uh, in one instance, two of the members that uh, challenged him were members of the Rules Committee. And after he survived that challenge, they were no longer members of the Rules Committee. All right, uh, it kind of speaks to the general importance of the committee in that respect. Um, and I'm kind of interested, he's got a new book coming out. If he discusses that in the book, I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, it's, it's immensely important. The general political science literature will talk about how the Rules Committee essentially operates as a traffic cop. Right, it determines, all right, here's the rule we're going to bring up to the front, uh, or this is the bill right, we're going to bring to the front, this bill we're going to keep behind. And over the last uh, two to three Congresses, we're seeing more and more of what we call closed rules, to the point where I think the last two Congresses have been completely closed rules. Uh, and actually speaking about data, if you ever want to steal that data, uh, we went back to 1905 and grabbed the text of all House Rules Committee issued rules, threw it in an Excel spreadsheet, and it's up on our website. Um, but yeah, it's been entirely closed rules past couple of Congresses, and what that means is no floor amendments. It's something you'll see members of both parties complain about, even when the majority party, uh, even majority party members will complain that their speaker is too iron-fisted. Uh, and inevitably, the new speaker is always going to point to that and say, well, you know, we're, I'm going to be a more hands-off speaker, uh, and inevitably, they rarely are. And so the rules that apply to the floor, right, and do they also, how do they control committee activity or do they? Sometimes they do, uh, in the sense that you'll see a major bill, uh, and that bill will get referred to multiple committees, and then the rules committee will then uh, combine all four of those committees drafts into one massive bill. Uh, but by and large, the Rules Committee doesn't dictate as much of what's going on in committee as the speaker independently. And we've certainly seen that vary uh, or all change a decent amount uh, past few Congresses, as well as in the Senate. You're seeing an increase of, increasing amount of bills that are getting Rule 14, meaning the committee is bypassed. Uh, entirely, sometimes with some merit and sometimes without. But uh, if a bill does go to committee, I still think it's fair to say that the committee does have a substantial amount of influence. Got it. And what about in the Senate? How are this? It's different than the House, right? In terms of the the Rules Committee and the you know and and you know, can you speak to that and how it works? Yeah. So you know there is a rules committee in the Senate, but it doesn't have any nearer near the authority that the uh, House Rules Committee has. Uh, it doesn't control day-to-day -day behavior. Uh, instead, 
largely because the Senate lacks a simple majoritarian mechanism for ending debate apart from reconciliation uh, and a number of other kind of specialized areas. Uh, the Senate relies heavily on unanimous consent agreements for most of their legislative business. Um, and you know what that means is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, you have to get the support of all senators to sign off on, hey, we're going to bring this bill up on this point day. Uh, and then we're going to debate the bill, have a vote on it. Here's going to who can offer amendments. Here's who can't. Uh, that kind of thing. And so on the House side, the rules are extremely important um, to determine then what comes up in what form it is, who has a voice, who doesn't. What has your research told you over the years? What questions have you asked about rules and what answers have you found about rules? Yeah, so uh, kind of in line with, uh, with what you're suggesting is that uh, on the House side uh, is a majoritarian institution. On the Senate side, right, the rules matter, uh, but they matter heavily in terms of leverage. Right, so because their threat of a filibuster or even just individual members objecting to unanimous consent agreements, uh, it has a massive impact on policy in terms of a number of bills just aren't going to be brought to the floor. They're not even going to try and schedule the bill because they know it's going to run into a filibuster. Or, and I think this gets underrated in some of the literature. Uh, individual members threatening to object uh, on a unanimous consent agreement can lead to massive policy concessions in the Senate. And you don't get that in the House, right? Uh, in the House, it's generally a majoritarian institution what the majority party wants it can get if it has that support. Uh, in the Senate, it's not only does the majority party have to want something, but the majority party has to want it in a specific form and want it badly enough in a specific form that they're willing to sacrifice future bills and future legislation uh, to fight for it. And from a rules point of view, so in the Senate then, all the rules are sort of subordinated to this concept of obstruction. Yeah, and I think that's a good way to put it, right? Is that at the end of the day, people will try and talk about things like holds or uh, loose slips on judicial nominees or uh, even the amending process, which is something that is unique in the Senate. Uh, but so much of this uh, does kind of stem from the fact that, that the chamber lacks a majoritarian mechanism for ending debate and the threat of obstruction, uh, whether regardless of the intent, right? Because uh, sometimes people say, well, you know, they, that wasn't a filibuster. They weren't trying to kill the bill there, right? They were trying to extract a constant you know, concession or something like that. Uh, at the end of the day, just the fact that that can be done has a massive impact on policy. And I think it has a massive impact on basically everything else. Are there any rules in the Senate that are, I guess, more more important? You know, for, I'm thinking about germaneness, for instance, which is quite an interesting one. Yeah. Um, and maybe there are other examples that you could point to where the rules do really matter for the Senate. Yeah. So the lack of the germaneness uh, requirement uh, 
is important, although I, I think in part in response to that is why you've seen the majority leader increasingly fill the tree the past you know, five to 10 years. Uh, so I would certainly say that uh, that plays a role. Um, yeah, the, the amending tree more broadly certainly plays a role. Rule 14 in terms of being able to bypass committee, uh, it's pretty clear that matters. And then the whole motion to proceed, I think has a bigger impact on the Senate than we often talk about. Uh, this notion that uh, not only can you filibuster a bill, but you can filibuster the action to actually get to the bill uh, plays a pretty substantial role. Got it. And in, in terms of the rulemaking, you know, another set of rules that I'm interested in is the not only the rules that the institution lays out for itself, but rules that are imposed by external parties. Like, for instance, yeah. there's the could you do you, I don't know if you have any in, insight into this, but like Republican versus Democrat rules that sort of bind their own party activity within the body. Can you talk any about that kind of rule system? Sure. Yeah. And uh, I'm happy also to talk about exogenous rules that are actually set up by the Constitution. Uh, there's not a ton of them, but they've certainly impacted the way Congress operates. Um, but yeah, in terms of uh, specific partisan rules, uh, I don't necessarily know how big an impact like uh, the selection rules, right? In terms of here's how we're going to pick speaker, or here's how we're going to set a committee under the steering uh, uh, committee have had, right? In terms of the differences between the House and the Senate, I mean, in terms of the differences between the Republicans and the Democrats, uh, but you can certainly go back and pull specific examples of party-based rules as being impactful. Uh, you know, the example that always comes into mind is uh, the King Caucus rules of the Democrats in the early 20th century, where, you know, they cast votes within committee on amendments that were going to come to the floor, and whatever a majority of the party said, they all went and voted lockstep, yes or no on the floor that way. Uh, and certainly, I think that helped them, uh, at least in crafting tariff policy during that period. Um, other kind of party-based rules, right? Uh, it's tough to say because they don't make a ton of those exceedingly open. So I don't know that there's been a ton of research on that. And I think that's my other question, right? They're the rules that are written down mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the, and are appear in the congressional record or they are in the constitution. And then there are unwritten rules, right? That are either in the body itself or as you said, exogenous rules. Um, yeah. Are there, are there these kind of informal rules in the bodies, you know, traditions or rules that that basically move with the kind of the what would typically be a, a law kind of effect? Or is that are they only going with what's written? Yeah, so in terms of the we often refer to them as norms. Um, yeah, I do think it's fair to say that a number of the norms are based in some uh, written rule, or if they're not, then somebody ends up breaking them and resulting in a written rule, uh, or yes, yeah, usually uh, resulting in a written rule. Uh, I should also add too that when we think about the Senate, it's largely governed by precedent as opposed to formal rules, right? And these are things that 
you know, the presiding officer often now in conjunction with the parliamentarian's office uh, interprets, right? Uh, so here's what the rule says. Here's how we interpret that rule in this instance, right? Um, but yeah, I, I do think in terms of norms, usually uh, there's a norm or two that uh, operates and will operate for a long time. And then somebody will realize it. There's nothing holding me back from breaking this thing. Uh, and if sometimes it'll get policed out by members, I guess, uh, just ignoring that member or in some instances, uh, <clears throat> kind of pulling that member aside and saying, hey, don't do this. Uh, certainly if you've been following uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, calling for votes, uh, pushing votes on adjournment pretty regularly, right? Uh, that's an example. And actually, now that I think about it, we saw that four or five years ago, or maybe five, six years ago, where they kept forcing roll call votes on motions to approve the journal. Yeah. And the way they ended up getting around that is they just started passing in house rules, actual rules, waiving the, the reading of the journal or waiving a roll call on the reading of the journal for you know, months. Right, and to change these rules, right? In theory, Congress could just completely wipe all the old rules away and come up with new ones tomorrow, right? In both chambers, I would assume. Is, is, that, is that correct to say, or, or is there something holding the chamber back from doing that other than two thirds or a majority? Yeah, uh, I think it's certainly fair to say that in some instances uh, where the constitution specifies that uh, one fifth of a quorum is necessary for a roll call vote, right? Or uh, to expel a member, you need uh, X number, right? Not much you can do in those instances, but in most instances, yeah, they could completely do that. Uh, and in a number of instances, you're kind of, or at least as an observer of Congress, you're like, why haven't you guys changed this rule? Uh, so. So both chambers could change all their rules almost if they wanted to tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, and again, you're right with, it, it will vary in terms of what the cost is, right? Be it you need two thirds or you need a simple majority, although there are ways to kind of get to a simple majority. Uh, you know, certainly think about the nuclear option, for example, in the Senate um, or uh, passing a, simple house resolution on the house side uh, that you can kind of like curb that. So one question I had that relates to the rules and maybe you have some insights on this, maybe not, but you know, there's this concept of one man, one vote, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or one rep, I guess in, in the house, you could say one representative, one vote or one Senator, one vote. Is that a rule or could that be manipulated by the rules? I believe that is a rule, right? That a member can't have a disproportionate number of votes. Uh, although, sorry, my hesitancy, I was just kind of thinking back to the era where the eras where they paired uh, and paired voting occurred fairly regularly and you did kind of see them manipulate around. Uh, yeah, I don't know that there's any systematic research showing that they did this, but the whole concept I should add behind a pair is that uh, especially in the early 20th century or the 19th century, if you have a member who is, you know, a conservative and a member who's fairly liberal on policy, uh, they would match up and say, hey, let's pair so that when one of us is out of town, 
the other one doesn't vote, right? Uh, that way we kind of cancel each other out. But it only really worked if you knew how that member was going to vote on certain issues. So sometimes when things would get real contentious, a member would say, you know, I have a pair with the senator from uh, uh, New Mexico, but I actually think he'd vote my way on this vote. So I'm going to go ahead and vote yes. And that would be like this, blah, of like, he wouldn't have voted yes, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but uh, by and large, I do think there is a, I would think some prohibition on uh, casting more than one vote. Because I've wondered about that, and especially in the context of, you know, the, 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 um, the Speaker of the House, you know, in effect, they're wielding votes on a lot of things uh, that, you know, can't be, um, they're, they're exerting more influence than a single vote, that's for sure, on all legislation. And you could say the same yeah. thing about committee chairs, where they have this disproportionate uh, kind of voting power. Certainly you could. And I don't know if you followed any of these scandals, but like it feels like every three to four years, a scandal will pop up in a state legislative body uh, where members are out of town. And so you'll see one member just controlling the voting knobs for like six different uh, uh, fellow partisans, right, uh, on a given thing. Uh, I think Alabama was the last time I saw that. Uh, so yeah, your point about the speaker having a disproportionate amount of influence, certainly is on the nose. And I think you have seen instances, certainly at the state legislative level of members voting for multiple folks.